Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I'm Liz Manichelle. This week, we have award-winning documentary filmmaker Greg Barker on the show to talk about directing his very first narrative feature fiction film, Sergio, which is currently streaming exclusively on Netflix. In the documentary world, a lot of my friends, well, I love the doc filmmakers, but people are so obsessed with awards, that so obsessed with awards, it distorts the whole process. And everyone starts you know, playing everyone else and you get all these emails about how, you know, come see my movie. And a lot of it's all a game and it's kind of nauseating. And uh, I mean, I'm a member of the Academy and all that, but I've not won an Oscar and but sure, I would love to. But, you know, if you just play for that, it's not why any of us got into this. We are lucky to be making movies, incredibly lucky and privileged. And let's remember why we actually do it, which is to tell stories that move people, not to win awards. One of the main questions I had was like the origin of bringing the the because he made a documentary about it in 2009 for HBO. And so I was like wondering, like, oh, out of all of the documentaries that he's made, like, why was this one the one that he wanted to make into the feature? And he has a really fantastic story about that, which you will hear. <laughs> also, I think we press him a lot about not having a ton of fiction experience, but going into a first fiction right. feature. I actually have like 15 more questions for him <laughs> that we didn't ask. Um, but just the concept of like, we often all feel imposter syndrome, but like he has this confidence because it's about storytelling. It, it, yeah. You don't need to have like these mystical qualities to direct a fiction feature. Because I don't think he had any fiction experience. I think it was only that the, yeah. the feature and that he was like his whole career before was either journalism or documentaries. And so to me, the like in taking on a, you know, I'll just ruin it a little bit, a $16 million <laughs> movie as your first feature. I, I mean, I would be terrified terrified but then to get into Sundance right yeah he obviously didn't have that fear and he had a lot of confidence like you said and it was interesting to hear his answers and like what he some of the things that he did in his prep for it and uh just the way he approached the film and then I I watched the movie beforehand and it was very good as per usual I did not watch the movie (laughs) before we get to Greg let's get to the network Liz what do we have for this week so Jay Duplass wrote an article that tied into the Tribeca premiere of this film that he's attached to called Not Going Quietly would have happened, you know, is to, to happen in April. Right, right. And um, he wrote an article about that film and also the future of independent filmmaking in relation to COVID-19. But what I really wanted to say is that this movie's amazing. And it seems like this, this article is kind of um, a secret stealthy promotion of the film Not Going Quietly. And I wish the whole article was about no, Not Going Quietly because it's a fantastic documentary about Adi Barkin. And it's so timely because Adi has ALS and he's fighting for healthcare rights and he's fighting for all these, um, you know, the concept of like being hit with a diagnosis of a disease that's debilitating and using your time um, and your resources incredibly wisely and efficiently. And uh, so I, <laughs> this is turning into me criticizing JG Plus, uh, <laughs> but I just want to say everyone should see this movie if they can, when they can. 
this this uh, article title uh, from IndieWire is a little misleading because yes, uh, it, it says like J2 Plus has seen the future and it doesn't look so bad. And then you read the documentary and it's like he doesn't really have any like future insight. It's just that the simple fact that he's made low budget movies his whole career and this uh, writer is positing that, you know, when the quarantine is lifted, making movies in groups of 20 or under is going to be far more beneficial than making movies with bigger crews. I have this feeling, maybe it's paranoia, I'm known to be a little bit tightly wound, but if, so we're set to shoot June 15th, we're nowhere near ready to shoot June 15th, we're not cast, (laughs) because no no one wants to jump on board our film, because they're like waiting for a re-scheduled pilot season, season, they're waiting to figure out big budget projects that they don't know if they're in line for, like there's a lot of questions in the air. So if our little indie production goes and starts shooting in June or July, when it still feels like studios are not necessarily going to be all gung-ho to be making projects, I feel like we're going to get the finger wag towards us because as an indie production, we're not going to be able to do you know, antibody testing prior. We're not able to do these like two week quarantines that other studio producers are suggesting. Well, we're, we're not gonna be able to do this, you know, we're not gonna have the, the actors put on their own makeup because I, I mean, we're still gonna be working with actors who are not used to putting on their own makeup. There's all these presumptions about what a production can do post COVID-19. And I don't know if our little indie micro budget feature can sustain that kind of behavior under our budget level, under our time constraints, all of these things. So I just think the idea that we've been prepared to do this because as indie filmmakers, we've worked in small groups and we've hustled like hell is very romantic, but I think we'll also have a lot of responsibility on our shoulders in protecting the safety and health of our cast and crew members. And that doesn't go away if you're a small production versus a large production. Right, but if they're allowing people to meet in groups of 50 or under and, like, businesses are opening, let's say bars even open, you know, and gyms open or whatever, like, why can't a f- indie film crew go out and make a movie with a 20-person crew? Like, I don't understand. What's the difference? I guess maybe I just feel nervous about that burden of responsibility. So if we bring on a low budget crew member who says, oh yeah, 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 I can, um, yeah, I'm I'm totally healthy. Don't you worry about that. Because they want a job, you know, fair, you know, that's fair, right? I mean, people have been, um, not been able to work for a while. Then there's like this, this issue, this moral ambiguity of like, do you hire the people you can afford who say that they're healthy? Do you, I mean, you're trusting a lot, which I think is scary. Right. Well, I think you also have to just, if you know your crews well, right. And you trust your crew of people, then you know, they're not going to endanger everybody, um, you know, for, whatever the tiny little day rate that we can afford on an indie production, you know? But without so like, testing, you don't know. You don't know if they are well. I don't know if I'm well. I don't know if my partner's well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, you know, like I, we just made this movie in uh, February and March that we finished right before the whole lockdown thing. And we have a, a big message group with all our, you know, the whole crew. And I mean, I basically trust every single one of those people. Like if they were to tell me, oh, yes, like I can come out and do this pickup day that we have to do, hopefully also in June. Um, Like I wouldn't I wouldn't have a second thought about that. I would obviously, you know, we're going to wear gloves. We're going to wear masks. We're going to follow all these safety procedures that people think that we should that we should be doing that that we are all talking about. But I'm not. I'm not going to not do it because I'm worried that someone's lying to me, you know, because I trust them. And if they do do that, then, 
I mean, I, we'll have to deal with it, but hope. I mean, I'm just trusting that people won't, you know. Yeah, but you already know them. Like, I'm starting a production right. where I'm not. I've actually very specifically asked not to produce this project. I don't have the bandwidth. Oh, right. So I'm not overseeing hires. Right. So, so you don't, don't know the people. Yeah, I don't know these. And like, I'm. I, I know our DP. I know our production designer. I trust them. Like, absolutely. Like, like you. I've worked with them. I trust them. I love them. But you know if they're being forced under a budget constraints to bring in teammates that they've never worked with before, I think that's where it gets a little scary. So I I'm with you. Right. Like if you have a team that you've worked with that you've been in the trenches with, that's different. You have a, a common language, but if you're bringing in crew members, um, who will work for your budget level, which is sometimes a little bit of a gamble. Yeah, true. Uh, I think that there's a there's fear for me there. So I think, um, and we have a production meeting in a few hours, so we'll probably talk about it then. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, I'm curious to hear what you guys decide and how you decide to move forward, you know? And I mean, as the director, like, you don't really have to come in contact with that many people necessarily. Like, you basically just need to talk to your cinematographer and your AD and then your producer. And then probably yeah. maybe, and they're actors, obviously, but not really anyone else, you know? Like, you don't have to be talking to every single person. Well, I'm not worried um, about me, actually. I'm worried you're about You're just worried about cast, other people, actually, other cast. Which is yeah. horrible to say. <laughs> I should say right. that I'm worried about everyone. And I realized now that I came in a little hot, and my opinion is a little bit more tempered <laughs> than it uh, appeared at the beginning of this conversation. Right. But for me, it's like you can't replace an actor once you start shooting. I mean, you can. Uh, there are instances we refer to them when we in our show with Leah McKendrick but um for the most part they're irreplaceable in my eyes and if they get sick then what do I do what do we do we waste a lot of money I mean I had a sick actor on the alternate unfortunately because like the whole crew was kind of sick um you know while we were making it just because of the time of the year and and I was really sick too um and uh, we got through it. And I'm watching the scenes now where he was really sick. And, uh, you know, you, you can kind of tell a little bit, but he really did a good job of pulling it together. And so I don't know. I mean, I think it's just one of those things. It's like a risk you always have to take, you know, yeah. COVID-19 or not. I think my point about this article is, yeah, I think you're right. It's mostly just a, a cover for um, promotion for this film. But a it's great a good film. film. So, <laughs> you know, hey, I think read the article and see what you think. But I think it's... Yeah, J. Duplass doesn't really add his comments. Don't really add any like secret, you know, opening the 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 box of like how to shoot movies when this all goes. There's nothing special in there. I do it's hope just, we can though. I do hope I we think, can pivot to make this happen. I think we have to. We've got to. We've got to make stuff. Like I, I I'm talking to a writer about collaborating on a project. Uh, hopefully in July or August that um I'm gonna adapt one of her plays into a, a script and hopefully mm. direct it and. I think if we do it with a crew of five to 10 people, it's like, let's just, I mean, I feel like I want to make stuff just to prove to the world that we can still make stuff, you know? Oh, and that like, that I this isn't, that. That, that this isn't, it's not the end. Like, I feel like I talked to a lot of my more pessimistic friends and they're like very down right now. And <laughs> they think like, oh, it's going to be September before, like, we're going to get locked down till September or we're going to, you know, all this other stuff. And I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But like, I think the world's going to keep turning and we're going to keep making movies and we're going to all go back to our jobs, uh, you know, one point or another. And we just got to hang in there, man, you know? And, but think, be also be safe. <laughs> I think there's a world, just to cap off my perspective, where if you're non-union and not using SAG talent, 
and you're still respecting, obviously, and treating your crew members and cast members well and, and not abusing them um, because you're going full non-union, where you could make it work. You could, I, I think it's the unions that are rightfully protecting their members that are going to slow right. down production timelines, you know, most likely for the best. But if you are able to be nimble and work outside of a union setting and you want to do that and your actors want to do that, then I do think there's a way to keep making content. I wonder if SAG is going to let actors go onto set um, when this is over, what, what SAG's reaction is going to be. That's like the main thing I'm thinking about is like, attaching talent in this moment but guess what liz what you've got mail what pretty pretty old mail but i i wanted to read these emails because uh they started way back in 2019 and then they kept on going so it's sort of interesting this series of emails from this filmmaker listener hello my name is colton you're Quahart, and I'm a 13-year-old filmmaker from Fallon, Nevada. I'm a huge fan of your show, and between your podcast and Film Riot, Film Riot, who's Film Riot? Um, I've gathered, <laughs> gathered almost all the knowledge now that I have about filmmaking. Oh, I've been working on a feature film for just over a year now. Pause. Let's just recap. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 13-year-old working on a feature who has gathered lots of knowledge about filmmaking. Yeah, we should just appreciate that. They, they've learned they've learned how to make a film from listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. So this is commendable wow. by itself. So this person's finished shooting, most likely they say, and just released a trailer and a teaser a couple of weeks ago. Oh my god, I think it. I don't even think I knew that you were supposed to release trailers and teasers until I was twenty five. My teaser and trailer are both playing in front of movies and theaters all over northern Nevada. Holy crap. Um, but I haven't been able to get a good review of my progress quality of this production from a fellow filmmaker. My movie is called The Legion of Hope, and it will most likely have a theatrical release on November 1st. Hello. Um, I'm hoping that people can differentiate my comments from this letter. Um, I really hope you can review my trailer teaser and give me some feedback on what you think I should do or just review um, or just a review on my trailer. Thank you so much for your time. I'll leave links below. Um this is crazy. This is amazing. This yeah. is a hero, hero filmmaker, 13 years old. So Timothy and I both watched the trailer and gave detailed notes. Timothy gave more detailed notes than I did. And, you know, Timothy wasn't even on the podcast at this time anymore, but he <laughs> just was, he still gets the email. So he just, you know, wanted to chime in and reach out to this, uh, this filmmaker. And I, I don't think I had, I think he responded first because I was very busy um, and then I responded second, um, you know, like a jerk. But anyways, uh, and then so this is another email he sent. I, this is probably, I think, January like 2020. So this is like pretty recent. And this was after we had given him feedback um, and like his response to our feedback and like kind of an update on where he is now. So hello again. I'm Carlton Yurik Hart. You said it better than me. From a few months ago with the Legion of Hope. And after months of reshoots and editing, I am finally finished it. And I'm playing it in my local theaters on Friday. But anyways, I took your advice on the trailer advertisement work. And I think hope that the that this one is a lot better than my first couple. If you give me some feedback on this one, then I would really appreciate it because I haven't yet had someone that's not part of my family review the VFX and just general wellness of the trailer. Here's the link. P.S. 
I found the latest episode of Making Movies is Hard, the one with your voice memos, all Rick's voice memos, very inspiring and satisfying, knowing that there's other people out there that are still having problems, even with a crew and money, so I know I'm not alone. You can probably imagine how many problems I have shooting a feature on my iPhone in 4K. Thanks, and best of luck with the alternate. I'm really excited to see it. I love that so. he thinks 4K is a problem. Like, oh, <laughs> 4K. Well, shooting it on on, on an iPhone is like, you know, it is. It's, I mean, having made my own iPhone short film uh, last last year, two years ago, I can't remember. Um, maybe it was just last year. I uh, I know the pain. It's definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was just a really wonderful series of emails, and I believe I wrote back to him after that one, and I can't remember if I've heard from him. Who knows if Colton's still listening, but I just wanted to read these emails on air for Colton just so people can hear that, like, 13-year-olds are making feature films on their iPhones. And I'll have to say, like, it looks far better than anything I made until I was like, I don't know, 25. Yeah. <laughs> like the things I was making, I made something when I was 16, I think was the first thing I ever made. And um, yeah, it, it you know, it, the, his work is way more impressive. I mean, he's got drone work in it. He's got dolly work in it. It's, <laughs> it looks really impressive. He, he He's in Nevada, so he's got all this amazing desert locale, and he really utilized the desert around where he lives to, to really make the production value look like Lawrence of Arabia in some certain scenes. And it was really impressive. And um, he got older people to be in the movie, so it's not just a bunch of kids, which really helps make it feel more legit. So good on you, Colton. Colton, great job. We're like excited that you exist. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do some homework and uh, try to find the links to Colton's work. And at least we'll have the trailer, if not the full film, um, on the show notes so people can see what Colton has come up with. Because, yeah, I think it's pretty impressive that you just go out there. And I mean, and Colton's not the only one. There's lots of other filmmakers who started really young and have made features before they were 18. And I think it's great. And, you know, I'm a little jealous. But, uh yeah, you know, good on. <laughs> I wish well, I could have made a feature when I was 18. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I but I think let's let's open it up too. I mean, if you're 65 and you're doing your first feature as well and you want someone to look at your trailer and you're not sure who to ask. Not I don't want to open the doors to give you more work. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But um, you know, we're happy to take a look at some of these yeah. things from time to time. And 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 I think uh, Liz will actually watch one of these too. Maybe yeah, probably. Right? Yeah, I th- it's a trailer. Yeah. It's short. I could do that. I think if if someone sent a trailer in now, I think Liz would watch it. Uh, whether you be twelve or ninety, I think we would uh, gladly watch it. And we actually have some, uh, you know, I don't want to say older gentlemen uh, guests coming on soon, but. Uh, yeah, we did talk to some filmmakers who made their first film in their 60s, I believe. That's going to be exciting to hear that story. So what do you got for us this week, Liz? So this is more of a call to action. Ah. Let's say you're pitching to an investor and they're asking for projections. And you are like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to pull from really successful indie comedies because my film's an indie comedy. And I'm going to pull in Napoleon Dynamite because that made a lot of money because it was very low budget. And, you know, it's a great projection for an investor because it shows we'll be really successful. What I want to just kind of express is that first of all Napoleon Dynamite was like a thousand years ago in movie terms and it's when people were going to the movies and when nothing like Napoleon Dynamite had come out and it was when Sundance had less competition because there were less entries you know there's all these different reasons what that made Napoleon Dynamite an outlier and the reason I'm bringing all this up is because when you're thinking about marketing and distribution or financing 
everyone uh, has to pull from very recent data. And so this is a call to action to refer to, um, to A, to refer to recent data when you're talking to investors, because if not, you're kind of pulling the rug, uh, the wool over their eyes a little bit. You're uh, making suggestions and commitments of success that are fairly unlikely if you're comparing them to uh, marketplace 20 years ago. But also, this is a call to action for filmmakers to share their data. Because the reason we pull from things like Napoleon Dynamite is because we have very little micro-budget success stories and data from those success stories to share with investors and producers in order to get people to jump on board our projects. And so I wanted to promote a few things. Just a few days ago, this amazing resource was published and it's on behalf of the Film Collaborative, which is they do like festival repping, they, over, they help with distribution, they consult, they're just really an amazing, amazing company. And uh, they published about 10 case studies of filmmakers who are willing they're filmmakers who are willing to talk very openly and specifically and granularly about how they made their film and how they released it. Hi, like that's call to action is be like these filmmakers, be brave, be uh, transparent, share your information. And then call to action is read these case studies on the film collaborative website. They are astounding. Um, I wanted to do a, a late plug for the Sundance case studies. We did two case studies a few years ago for Columbus and Unrest. And in a few months, we should, you know, my teammate Jess should be publishing ones for Thunder Road, The Devil We Know, and 306 Hollywood. So read the data out there, share your data, um, and then come on the show and tell us about how you spent your money and what worked for you. Uh, an additional plug for Tom Huang, who's on the show talking about Find Me and his case studies up there. And it is amazing. Yeah, I have some thoughts about all this stuff. I mean, it's interesting, um, the whole comparison thing and like what you put in your, your materials. Cause I mean, I, when I first started, uh, my deck, I put all kinds of like fancy famous movies in there. And I think some of the advice I got was similar to what you said. We we're like, don't put like the outliers in there. Don't put the get outs of the world in your thing because that's not helpful. Like your movie's not going to do what get out did. Your movie's not going to do, like you said, like what Napoleon Dynamite did. Like it's not, it's just not the same, right? Yeah. You know, no matter how much you think it is, it's not. And it's old. it's a different time. Just and, a few years and, ago, and, it's old somehow. Yeah. So you you have to pick things that are like within at least a five-year period of, of when you're making your movie, you know? And I had movies like Spring, I thought was a really good example because it was a really low-budget movie that, um, you know, got distribution and did well. Um, I think it was made for somewhere around 500 and then, it, you know, it grossed like, I think a couple million, you know, JD Dillard's movie was a good example at the same time. Slight. Cause that was like, yeah, yeah like it was like $250,000 budget and it did a couple million or something, or I think 1.7 was its box office, you know, which was like really great, you know, um, numbers for a $250,000 movie. Yeah. Um, so those were sort of some of the examples that I, that I went to and I took off like the big, like being John Malkovich and all these other things that like, <laughs> like they just don't relate to my movie. Like no matter how much I think they're similar, it's like they have movie stars, they are directed by famous people. 
they came out, you know, 20 years ago. Like it's like all those things don't matter, like make it not a relevant comparison. So I totally comparisons. You could say it's like got the tone. Yeah. The tone. Exactly. And I think I, that's what I was thinking. I was like confusing tone with numbers (laughs) in the beginning. And then I got smart to like, okay, like let's like actually pick movies that are like your movie, like budget wise, size wise and, and scope wise, Mm -hmm. you know? And then also, yeah, I think the timeliness thing is very important, especially now where things are just changing over and over and over again. So, here, here is what Phantasm. I'm trying to say. It's going to change. Someone's going to change that name. But Phantasm. I like Phantasm. I love it. It's a great movie. So, Phantasm's so fun. Uh, yeah. I, uh, is that Reggie Bannister? Yeah. Um, Reggie's in yes. the movie. Yeah, Reggie's in the movie. Yeah. I met Reggie Bannister <gasps> at Comic-Con and uh, I had not seen any of the Phantasm movies at the time. And then we got his autograph and he's like, so what Phantasm movie is your favorite? Is it three? <laughs> is it two? Is it four? What's your, what's your favorite here? First of all, it's one. And yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so Liz, the player, who's our player for the week? We have two players. Yes. Yay. I, someone, someone, the, uh, the show. <laughs> The show. <laughs> Interviewed. The show. We created a prompt this week based off of how do you choose, why do you choose the projects that you do? Why do you jump on projects as an actress, as a producer, as a director? And um, both Bianca Beirudi and Christine Weatherup were interviewed. And here they are. My name is Bianca Beirudi, and I'm an independent producer of both narrative and documentary film based in San Francisco. There are several factors that I consider when uh, deciding whether or not to come onto a film as a producer. The first one is, you know, is the filmmaker's story or idea innovative or putting a refreshing twist on a familiar concept? Uh, Those are the kinds of movies that I like to watch and therefore the ones I like to make as well. Another factor is, you know, what are my skills relative to the filmmaker's needs? Um, Is it a chance for me to gain a new skill or learn something new? Um, Or is it a chance to offer skills or support that the filmmaker doesn't have but needs, like around casting or crowdfunding? Another big thing for me is, you know, who's making the film? Um, Is the writer or director or other team members, are they people that I respect and want to work with? Are there other women and people of color and queer folks on the team um, having diversity and a feeling of an inclusive um, production is really important to me. I'm Christine Weatherup, and I am an actor, writer, and director. I think it can be any number of things that excite me as an actor. I think one of the first most important things is the filmmaker. I want to uh, make sure that it's somebody I want to spend weeks on end with, and somebody that's a collaborator, somebody who's enthusiastic and has a vision. Those are all things that are important to me. I think the material is also quite important. I mean, if you really believe in that filmmaker, sometimes material that might not jump out at you on the first read is transformed once you talk to them. I think the other thing that also often is a is a deciding factor is, does the project challenge me? Is it something different than I've gotten the chance to do? Those things would definitely increase the chances of me saying yes. And do I just want to work with you? <laughs> Christine was in West, no, not Westworld. Uh, yes, 
Watchmen. Oh, and Westworld. She was in both, both. Westworld and Watchmen and Bread and Butter and Grey's Anatomy oh, wow. and Mad Men. And she's, oh, and like some Rob Zombie movie that I don't know the name of, because, but I should because I'm a horror fan. Anyway, she's great. She's yeah, and, and she's got her first feature that she's directing and I believe starring in that she's working on right now. So yeah. I'm sure we'll be getting, getting to see that soon. Um, but I, I remember when I watched Watchmen, <laughs> I was like, because she's in the very opening of the show. I was like, yeah, wait, that that looks like Christine. It's Christine! She's amazing. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And I texted Matt like right after, or I tweeted to both of them. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I died. So I died cool. because I'm like, I'm, I'm Chrissy's biggest fan. I just like absolutely oh, adore man. her. And she nailed it in that. Like, I just felt like everyone, like everyone should just like snatch her up and cast her in every single thing and have her direct every single thing. And talk about the perfect like featured role in a show like that, where she not only got to like have like, you know, a big portion of the show, but she got to do all these different emotional things in her scenes. Like she got to show a, a nice range of stuff. Cause there's so many different snippets that you see. It is really awesome. Um, I also, I'm just a huge fan of that show. I thought that show was like flawless all the way through. I stopped um, watching after her episode. What? Oh my God. It just gets better and better and better. I don't know. It's like, I just kept thinking, I'm not going to be more excited than seeing Chrissy on Watchmen. Uh, So I just, like, it's on our DVR. Every day, Sean's like, Watchmen. And I'm just like, why? If if Chrissy's not going to be in it, I don't really want to watch it. It's so good. Oh my God. If Sean's not watching it because uh, you don't want to watch it, I feel bad for Sean. (laughs) And I feel very bad for you too because. Oh man. Like you think that it's like got like it can't get any better as far as like episodes go because like there there is like a really amazing work of art episode. I think episode 7 or 8 is like it's like a work of art. It is art. Fine. It is excellent art and then when where it goes from there in the last two or three episodes, it's like it's just incredible. Okay. So you told me you to, have watch to watch Hard it. Target. I watched Hard Target. You're telling me to watch this. We'll watch this. We're going to watch so, it. We'll probably start today. Thanks a lot. Whatever. <laughs> Sounds like you didn't really like Hard Target that much. You kind of liked Hard Target. It's okay. I mean, it was, it was actually really, I've, anything that's dark, I can't watch. So it got really dark for me because of all oh, the no. murder. <laughs> so. Yes. There's a lot of murder in that movie. I mean, um, oh, quarantine. Quarantine depression is no joke, let me tell you. Ugh. Well, here's one thing that you could do in the quarantine that might make you feel better is you could uh, go to our Patreon page. <gasps> what and, a great uh, segue. <laughs> see what we have to offer over there, which is pretty much nothing but the show. Uh, <laughs> But hopefully that might be enough. I don't know. Um, we were working on swag. We are working on all kinds of things. It's all kind of come to a bleeding halt. Any kind of support you guys want to give on the show would be amazing. A dollar, a two dollars, nothing, whatever. A million it's all dollars. Good. Let's start a out there. Dollars. It's an option. Let's just start out there. Yeah. But in the, and in an ongoing thank you to our continued support from our patrons. We love you. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We, it means a lot to us. But if you don't have a dollar or a hundred dollars or a million dollars to support us on Patreon, you can go to iTunes and write us a review or just give us a rating. Either one would be great. Those are just as helpful as uh, Patreon supporters. Or you can email us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Without further ado, I think it's time to get to our conversation with Greg Barker. 
Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. We start the show with a little stat sheet, uh, so to say, like a little breakdown of the film and you know, just to get some of the general information out. So this is for Sergio. How many days did you shoot the film? 38. Amazing. What was the rough budget? About 16 million, which included some tax breaks and things like that in some of the countries. And then how long did you work on it from its inception to the release? It depends on what you mean by its inception. On one, one hand, I've been working on this since 2005 when I first came across the story. Um, from the first time we pitched the, the idea, the specific idea to Netflix, it was about two and a half years. Wow. Yeah, so pretty quick, actually. At what point did you know that you wanted to do a narrative version of the documentary that you made? Before I did the documentary. <laughs> so the, oh, the, wow. Oh. Yeah. So I always saw it as a narrative feature, uh, going back to the first time I encountered the kind of the outline of the, the details of the story, which happened because Samantha Power, who at the time was a professor at Harvard and who I knew, was writing a book about Sergio. And uh, I started reading early chapters and uh, saw it as a, as a narrative feature. But at the time, I was you know, making films for Frontline for PBS. And so I was not going to realistically get a movie made. And so I did it as a, a feature documentary first. But then I always in the back of my head, I wanted to make it as a as a movie. How many people were on set? It went from a minimum of about 70 or 80 to about 450 on the bigger days. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. And then out of all the projects that you've made uh, in your career, how difficult was this one? That's hard to say. It was challenging. Uh, it actually was also sort of charmed in that we didn't run into any number of massive challenges that we could have. I mean, we didn't have weather delays. We didn't have, you know, those kinds of things that can really, we filmed on three continents. So, you know, everything kind of worked pretty smoothly. So, but at the same time, it was a big feature film compared to anything else I'd done before. So that was it had its own challenges, but it was a pretty charmed project from from the outset in that we didn't, it kind of went pretty smoothly. I'm really inspired by what you said about uh, knowing that you wanted to make a fiction version of this, of this story. And can you talk a little bit about what convinced you and why you felt it needed to be told in that way? There was a scope to this guy's life. Sergio Vera de Mello was a, you know, he's a Brazilian uh, diplomat for the United Nations. So it sounds kind of dry, but actually he, he, he kind of, he probably saw more war and human suffering than anybody of his generation, he, just because of the scope of his, of his career, stretching from Mozambique to um, Bangladesh, to Cambodia, Rwanda, Iraq. And he, Somehow he remained a, an optimist throughout. A lot of people with those that kind of background become very cynical and jaded, which I know firsthand having kind of early in my career working in that world as a journalist. So he saw the world very clearly and was able to act effectively politically in this 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 world and remain optimistic. However, he could not see himself clearly. He was uh, kind of he led a very um, chaotic personal life wasn't always as authentic as, you know, he would like to have been with those closest to him. So in that, that kind of internal struggle, I kind of identified with on a certain level. And I also saw that it had the kind of emotional and narrative scope of some of my favorite movies, like Year of Living Dangerously or English Patient. And so I was just, I just saw it in, in that kind of, in that 
in that way from the from the from the very beginning. And and you know, at the, initially Samantha Power had given the narrative rights to her book to somebody else before I started having these conversations. And so I got the documentary but rights, carved those out. And then over time, this other filmmaker was not able to get his project off the ground. And I, I then got the narrative rights too. And, uh, you know, but it was, so it was a long project, but it really kind of ended up pretty much where I thought it was going to be from the very beginning. Why uh, now? Like, why why were you able to make it in 2018 versus, like, 2012 or 2015? Was it just a certain, like, thing that happened that allowed you to, to pitch Netflix or take it out or get the script written? Or what what were the circumstances that allowed you to make the film? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, 10 years ago, the, a movie version at that time would have felt kind of like another Iraq war film because part of it's set in Iraq. And... Uh, those films, as you recall, weren't doing very well. I mean, probably we, we, it's hard to recall the Iraq war movies of 2008, 2009, 2010, because they all tanked. But then also what happened was, you know, on a purely business practical level, which really matters, uh, Wagner Mora, who plays Sergio, was coming off of, uh, of playing Pablo Escobar in, in Narcos, the big Netflix series. And he is Brazilian. And totally independently, he was looking around for you know, a, a new project. And um, he and his manager, who, who became one of the producers of the project, thought maybe he should play Sergio de Mello. And, and, and uh, Wagner had a long time interest in human rights and, and the United Nations. So he started like thinking that maybe that was, you know, just, he was started doing his own research. And then we kind of just found out about each other. And, um, and he had already been at the top of my list to play Sergio. And so very quickly, we kind of got together and had long conversations on Skype and realized that we wanted to make the same movie. And then we were able to package that and find a, a great screenwriter um, and then took it as a as a pitch to uh, to Netflix. And so I had the rights to the book. Wagner was perfect for the lead. We kind of the timing was right. And things just kind of, you know, sometimes happens, you know, it takes a while for the stars, the stars to align. And then when they do, things kind of take a, take on their own momentum. I think now is the time for this movie. So, right. so having, you know, it kind of all worked out the way I think, it, you know, it, for the, for the best that this story at this moment is more relevant now. And we'll think we'll find a wider audience now than it would have done 10 years ago. I'm also just thinking of like the learning lesson for filmmakers who are trying to attach talent. How did Wagner track you down or how do you, do you track? I mean, like you found out about each other, but like, was it through your representation or was it through his? Rep I mean, can you talk a little bit more about how you found each other? I had the rights to this book. To, and so, you know, that had taken, I'd had them for years, going back to that 2011. I'd renewed them. I was doing other stuff. It wasn't always, you know, the, you know, the, what I was doing full time, you know. But I, and I, at one point, I almost let the rights go, <laughs> and I thought, eh, I'll keep them, you know. Every time that costs money, that's money out the door. That you get back in theory if the movie gets made, but you know, that wasn't happening, and it wasn't an active, it wasn't an active development. Somebody on his side sent a message to Samantha Powers' office. And at the time, she had done gone on to be ambassador to the United Nations for Obama. And we were still in touch because I was making a, actually a film about the last year of the Obama administration for HBO. She just passed it on to me and then and then we lived out. 
But the key thing that's is important for any aspiring filmmaker is that, you know, I had the rights, you know, I had something. Otherwise, you know, it's very easy. And Wagner, there was never any sort of desire to kind of find another filmmaker. But, you know, if you don't have leverage as you're starting out, it gets much easier to for, you know, somebody to say along the way, hey, let's get a filmmaker who's done XYZ or made movies like this before. And, and I had that one card in my hand. It's not, not an automatic ticket to get to make the movie, but it got me into the conversation. And then I had to prove myself from there, and, you know, and then got to make the film. Were there any concerns about you directing, you know, such a big budget film as your first film coming from a world of document, documentary filmmaking? Or were people pretty confident that you were, were going to have the chops to, to lead the ship on this? I mean, I was confident. I'm sure there were doubts. Um, they never really were expressed to me directly. I mean, I never had that conversation with Wagner. Often you have to go in and uh, we have a pitch meeting and then I had to go in, which I wanted to do separately in my directorial vision for the film. So I have a, I had a long, a big deck that my producers, you know, helped me put together because I'd never, I hadn't done one of these before, but it was actually really helpful. And it's like everything from tonally how it'll how it'll feel what the look of it is perspective cinematographers you know just the whole sort of take on what the what my director's vision was and uh perspective cast beyond wagner and it kind of worked you know it was a very useful exercise to go through it took quite a lot of work but it then meant that when i went in to have that meeting i knew exactly what i the film that i wanted to make and uh and looking back on it which i did actually just recently um, it's pretty damn close. When a studio is hiring a director or a director to be like the captain of a ship, because you just go off into the world, and the director has a huge amount of, of autonomy and authority, and things can go off the rails really quickly. And it's very hard to, to change course. So they have to have confidence, rightly so, that you know what you're doing and you have a clear vision that you can communicate to people. So, you know, I, I'm sure there were questions, but I never, ever felt any doubt because I was able to show that I had a had a clear view of the direction I want to take the film. You know, you did the documentary and, and now you're doing the fiction film. That's a lot of years of Sergio, but also it's a lot of pressure because you're defining and redefining a character in different ways. And I guess I wanted to know just a little bit more of, did you feel a sense of responsibility in conveying all aspects of his character? Did you feel worried? Were you threatened? Were you scared uh, at that pressure? Or um, did you feel like you had, you know, all the research you needed from the documentary? And so it, uh, it did you kind of let go a little bit for the fiction film to see what life could come to itself? Yeah, it's more like that. And it's the same in documentaries. It's like feeling pressure to do, tell a certain story in a certain way is actually not productive, because then that inhibits you. You know, you have to feel free on the set, whether that's with, you know, 400 extras or just a very sort of emotional one-on-one -on -one interview for a documentary. You have to feel free in the edit room. It's just have, you have to let go. Now, all the preparation is, is absolutely crucial because it's only by immersing, at least for me, immerse, immersing myself in, that, in the subject that I then know it so well inside and out that then I'm free to relax and kind of, you know, know what's going to work and what doesn't work. So treating the subject... The second time, honestly, it sounds a little weird, but it's true. I, I, it felt like somebody else had made the documentary. By the time I got to make making the movie, it was so different. Emotionally, it was a completely different kind of movie. And I just, 
I didn't even watch the doc. I didn't even want to go back to it at all. It was almost like I'd done a huge amount of research and uh, that was great. So the prep had all been done. I had to dive back into that. Uh, as a filmmaker, I didn't care what I had done the first time because it wasn't productive. It felt like a totally different experience. And I think it had to feel that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I mean, I, I have no interest in repeating myself. But it was, you know, it was, it saved a huge amount of time um, because I knew this, the, the world inside and out and was able to convey that to the crew and the cast. And also, I mean, luckily, I, I mean, I, was, I kept all the, all the research. So I had all this material, both from rushes to all this archival materials which were amazing references for the production design and costume and also for the cast too so you know that was that was great but it felt very like a totally different film can, can you talk a little bit about structuring uh the film and how you approached like getting the film written and everything like did you seek out a writer to be brought onto the project and and kind of hire them and work with them closely or like just talk to us about how that structure and and the story that we see in this film like kind of came together yeah i mean well craig borton who uh, wrote uh, dallas fires club was uh he kind of also came to the material sort of organically i think uh, i can't remember how he first came across it he and and wagner were both at uh are both at uta and so i think he just saw it as a possible project on these lists that go around and was drawn to it we all kind of saw the movie in a similar way as kind of a, a man grappling with the choices he'd made in the course of his life as he's struggling to survive on a practical level it's like you know i thought about the structure of the story a lot over the years i mean sergio had led such a kind of epic life and had loved and failed and fallen out of love so frequently. There was just, there was a lot of story there, which is great in a book, but, you know, obviously a lot of choices have to be made in a, in a, in a movie. So we kind of, you know, the, for a lot of reasons, a lot of practical reasons, a lot of just narrative reasons, we chose this kind of nonlinear structure, which I think suits the material, but also, you know, the linear structure of his story would have been a 60, $70 million movie, right? It's just so... Right. I'm not sure it would have been any better, <laughs> but you then actually have to be in each place for a long time. If you have a, a structure where basically it's all taking place inside somebody's head as they're, you know, so Sergio is the target of a, of a terrorist attack on the UN headquarters in Baghdad shortly after the American invasion. And he's trapped in the rubble with another another guy and two U.S. medics are trying to save him. And in the course of that drama inside the rubble, which in real time lasts about 90 minutes, he's having lots of interactions with the rescuers, with people outside, including his fiance, and thinking about the choices he's led along both professional and personal that have brought him to that moment. So it's a very kind of fluid structure. But that also means filmically that you can, you, you can remember flashes. You know, you can remember you know, a moment from a scene in East team in, in say Cambodia, where if you did it in a linear fashion, you'd have to then be in Cambodia. What's that mission about? What's this? You'd have to develop all of it, which would take longer to shoot. But we were also able to kind of distill each moment in his life to its absolute essence. It actually helped production wise, but I think it also made a more kind of poetic, I hope, a more poetic, um, telling of the, of, the, of the story. So there were lots of factors that went into that. But I think in the end, it's again, that's kind of the way I saw the story from the very beginning. 
I just wanted to ask about uh, the romantic arc in the film because that ends ends up being like a pretty big part of the story. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, and I haven't seen the documentary, so I don't know if that's a big part of the documentary as well. But I'm just curious, like, um, you know, why did you settle on that being integral to the story, and and kind of how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, again, I saw it as key from the outset. And Anadarmus, who's incredible, plays Sergio's, you know, life partner, uh, Carolina Larriera, who was with him in Baghdad when the bomb goes off, literally down the hallway, and is trying to find him. And then in real life, actually goes up to the rubble where he's, you know, where she can kind of speak to him through this kind of hole in the rubble. It's incredibly dramatic. And um, it is, you know, featured in the documentary too. But I just felt like, you know, Sergio, there's a, you know, there's a political version of this that just kind of focuses on the UN, the US. And that's interesting. But for me, that's, that's more of like the kind of films I would have made for Frontline for PBS, or, you know, you can write a book about all that. I was really interested in, in this, this struggle of a of uh, a man who'd been everywhere and saw the saw the world sort of so clearly but couldn't see himself and then through this one this 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 relationship has this transformative experience where he then starts seeing his professional work more clearly and seeing himself by being challenged by this very very strong economist from within the un system who basically calls him out on a lot of his bullshit and both professional and personal and and challenges him to become a more complete human being and um, and he pushes away from that and is scared of that and scared of the intimacy that 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 would involve but realizes that his life has kind of been you know only uh, you know kind of half full and uh, so I've always thought and and then Carolina is you know there when this most dramatic moment in his life half, uh, half, uh, unfolds so it for me it was just a natural way of uh, of unpacking that story. But I also felt like, it's, again, it's like I, I'm more and more interested in the emotional stories of characters rather than like, you know, the politics. I love, I come from a, you know, political world and I've covered a lot of, you know, political events. But I also think what drives the human experience is our deep emotions and how we're tested in moments of crises. And and for me, that comes through. I, I thought, the, you know, what, what would you be thinking about where you're stuck in the rubble? You're not going to be thinking about a UN Security Council resolution. You're going to think about, you know, who, who you yeah. fell in love with and the choices exactly. you made, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I thought it worked perfectly for that because, um, you know, it just felt natural that th that's where his mind would go. And I never felt distracted by any of the times that we flashed around because it all kind of came together to tell a really fluid story in the end, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I had one very specific, and I know Liz hasn't, hasn't had a chance to see the movie. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Liz, but I have to ask a very specific question because yes. <laughs> this is, this is the, the part where that really got to me, but it's this, the scene in this loom shop in Timor, I believe it is. Yeah. Um, can you talk about where you came up with that scene? Like how, how that was born and kind of how you approach that scene? Cause that was incredible. And that was one of the times where I where it brought tears to my eyes watching the film because it was so powerful. But um, I just, just want to hear about that. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, this is actually it's it, I'm glad you mentioned this because it's uh, we actually Wagner and I did a uh, little piece on it's on Instagram and or Twitter for Netflix called Shot by Shot, where we go through that scene. It was just posted oh. yesterday. So oh, you should excellent. check it out. Your, your, oh, man. Your, 
yeah listeners to check to it out because we it's uh yeah so sergio it's like he's in east timor where he's incredibly powerful he's in fact the most powerful official in u.n history for a particular country where he's running this entire country which is trying to establish it itself as an independent nation from from its neighbor indonesia but things are not going well he's got incredible power but he can't get the rebel leader who's led this independence movement to give him the time of day and and he's sort of lost he's wandering through this village and he meets uh carolina who he had met encountered briefly at some uh, at a reception and she is just walking down the street and she uh takes him to um a weave a weaving hut where she's running a microfinance project for Timor, Timorese women who are, um, you know, kind of building, trying to rebuild their country from the ground up by just, you know, making fabrics and things. And he has this incredible conversation with one of the weavers there. Her name is Senorina, where she talks about, he asked her about it. He asks her about what she wants for the future. And she tells this incredibly poetic story about wanting to go back to her homeland and go up to the, you know, go up into the sky and become a cloud and fall like rain on her, on the land where she was born. And it's, it's an amazing story. So this, this, this actually happened um, to Sergio. Um, not exactly in East Timor. It happened in a, in, in a, uh, a refugee camp in uh, Central Asia. He was on some UN fact-finding mission and being shepherded around by, you know, all of these top officials and you know i've seen these things you know or usually these you know dudes in suits or march past you know people who are completely destitute and kind of pretend to to care but really you know and often do good work but they're not really engaging with people sergio that's not that wasn't his style um you know ever but there was this one moment where he he ended up in a conversation with uh with a refugee a woman who had lost everything and and told her this story almost verbatim to what you have in the, you know, what we have in the movie, and in the Samantha Powers book, and I and I just thought, you know, initially it wasn't in the script actually because it was kind of like, well, how do we would it be too corny and and Wagner and I were just going through stuff as we were preparing for final shooting. I was like, this is an amazing moment. We got to figure out a way of doing it, and so we, you know, we constructed this this, uh, you know, we. We made it work for that scene, and and um, and you know it was really for something like that to work, it has to feel authentic. So the woman in the movie who you know delivers that line is not an actress. She's she and everyone else in that weave hut are from East Timor. We filmed the scene scene in Thailand because it's kind of logistically impossible to film in East Timor, but we flew a few dozen. Um, extras and sort of, you know, minor characters in from East Timor, plus all the textiles and costumes and everything to kind of recreate East Timor in a, in a you know, rural Thailand. So, and that, those lines, yes, they're, what, they're pretty much what was said to Sergio in a refugee camp in Asia. However, the woman saying them really lost all of her family in the independence struggle. So she felt like they were coming from her own experience that she was speaking wow. for herself and for her entire country. So we didn't rehearse that scene. You could feel the pent up emotion um, 
and in Signorina herself. And we just, we realized, you know, I realized like we should not, we need to capture this. So we filmed that, you know, really for the first time that anyone even said the lines. So that reaction that you see where Sergio is so taken aback and moved and hugs her, that all just happened. None of that was really anticipated. It just happened. Wagner's just reacting to this woman's very real emotion. And he had this very genuine reaction to that. So, and it come, it's a transformative moment for Sergio in the movie. So if it doesn't work right, we're kind of screwed for the rest of the film. And then, you know, he then sees himself differently. He sees Carolina differently. The next scene, they kiss and, you know, and he changes his whole approach to how he's dealing with the political situation in East Timor. It's a key moment. And it's, it was either going to work or, or not. And uh, so all of that stuff, we, you know, trying to make it authentic by drawing on what really happened by this amazing sort of performance by this real, you know, person who is not acting. Um, well, she is acting, but she's drawing from her own, own experience. Made it all kind of work. So I'm glad that you picked that out. I've been chewing on this question, and I feel like you just teed up almost the answer for me, Greg. So I'm <laughs> going to ask you to take me home. Okay. You know, as directors, we're often trying to trust our instincts, um, but sometimes it's hard to find those instincts. And and having come from the world of documentary, did you have any difficulty figuring out when you feel like you nailed the take or when you feel like you had what you wanted? Or is that all coming from your experience in the past? Or can you talk a little bit about knowing when you have it? I think in documentaries, you have, you know what feels authentic and what doesn't. Because you're, you're directing real people and creating situations where real people are going to act natural in front of a camera, which is not a natural thing for most people. So, so yeah, I had pretty good instincts anyway about what's going to work and what doesn't and when you have it, when you don't, you know, and when to stop. Just before we started, I, um, I talked to uh, Matt Heineman, who directed Private War and, you know, done some amazing documentaries. Was, so he had just made his first feature. It was finishing it as I was starting mine. And he said to me something, he said, just Greg, just trust your documentary instincts because, you know, hmm. that's what I realized. We know what we're doing. And he was right. There's little technical things about like, do you have the right coverage and all that kind of stuff, which I had a great crew on and, you know, you have to learn. Knowing when something feels right and knowing how to talk to actors, knowing when you got it, knowing how to stick to a schedule, all that stuff, I kind of, I, I had a pretty good instinct on for the the scene that we were talking about in in the loom shop with the weaver that was two cameras i imagine right yes we had two cameras i think most of that is from one we did a few takes obviously oh you did a few takes oh i was i was wondering cuz like yeah. you talked yeah. about how the first take was so powerful that i and i mean i i saw that hug in the film and i mean that's where <laughs> that's what really got me you know cuz it was such a a raw moment so i was imagining that you probably shot with two cameras and you know, but you did do a couple of takes of it after we that. We did that a couple of takes, but her performance, the main part of her, is the first. And that moment at the end when Wagner, react, you know, kind of doesn't know what to do at the end. And that's all the first, that's all the first take. And then, I mean, yeah. obviously Wagner's amazing. So he's, oh, yeah. he's like, we got to do that again, Wagner. We need to close up on you, like as you hug her. And, I mean, that's, he's, that's no problem. <laughs> so an actor like that. Um, yeah. But I think we generally had two cameras. I think if we had two on that,
people and, you know, doing the documentary thing where you're getting like these real stories out of someone who doesn't necessarily isn't used to being on camera to working with professional actors. Like, was there a big learning curve for you there or was that pretty easy to just like move over uh, to doing this kind of work? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd never worked with actors before. <laughs> it was pretty straightforward. I had a great team, right? So we were very in tuned. Like my first AD, you know, was really attuned to actors' needs. My my DP very loves working with actors and very, again, very tuned into their, their sort of emotional state. So with something like Sergio, where you have these really heightened sort of deeply emotional scenes, trying to sort of schedule the day and the and manage the set so that it you know they can keep that is really important those moments where she's going up to the rubble and talking to sergio and finds out what happens to him and those were all shot over three or four days um, oh wow because we had to get the light you know consistent and uh you know, that's very challenging for anybody uh she's an incredible professional and technically just absolutely knocked it out of the park but you know trying to like create a moment where you're not asking them to like hey can you keep crying for like you know three hours we gotta like <laughs> really just adjust these little lights it's like you just gotta get it tell them what's happening be clear right if it's gonna be an hour let them know you know it's fine the actors will right. do it but you gotta be like don't tell them we're ready to go in five minutes and then oh in fact it's gonna be another 45 you know, that's, that's hard. The performance might suffer because of that. I mean, they can do it, but it's like, it's better for them to like, to just know clearly what's going to be expected of them. It's not that different from documentaries because you're managing real people and, but it's obviously the scale and the, the depth of emotion is very different. After doing this and, you know, you've made like countless documentaries, the one narrative feature film, do you want to do this again? Are you excited to go out and make more narrative content? Uh, I do want to do it again. I really liked it. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's fun, you know, the scale of the stories that you can tell is, or it's, it's very attractive, just creatively. I also think that right now in this moment, the kind of documentaries that I've been doing for the last 15, 20 years, I try, I don't, I try not to make political documentaries, but they exist in this kind of political space. So, you know, the hunt for bin Laden or, you know, the Obama administration is last year and domestic terrorism, I've done all these sort of things. They're often now seen through a political lens because our public discourse is so divided. And uh, it's very hard to then speak to people who kind of prejudge your film, either positively or negatively, depending on whether they, you know, where they fall politically. And I think that drama, narrative, still is a way of speaking to a wider group of people. We all sort of are drawn to stories. And I'm just trying to reach people. I have no interest in making films that appeal to a small niche of people who I already agree with. And, you know, <laughs> right. I'm just trying to, you know, and I want to just move people and get people to reflect on themselves and the world that we live in. And I think that right now that drama is the, is a more powerful way and a more effective way of, of doing that. So this is sort of more of a documentary question. Um, and I know that we have a lot of listeners who are documentary filmmakers or aspiring documentary filmmakers. And you've had a full career in documentary films. And it seems like you've probably only really been doing this directing as your main form of income for your career. Is, is that right? Are you like sustaining yourself off of your filmmaking? For, I've been lucky, yes, for a number of years, yes. 
So what advice would you give to other documentary filmmakers who are, are making their documentaries and having issues maybe like getting the next funding or, you know, actually making a self-sustaining career? It's hard. I mean, being freelance is, is hard. You never know where, you know, every film could be the last one day. I always tell us on one day, you know, one film will be the last. So you just don't know when that's going to come. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to wait a couple of years between projects. It's it's I've been there from when I started directing films to I was able to focus on projects I really cared about, was passionate about. And I think that comes across in the way that like, the films were made, but also in the way that people, funders kind of perceived the project. So there's no secret how to, how to earn a living. I found a home a few different times. Um, I made a number of, I had a great mentor in London, a producer, director, documentaries who had an amazing track record with the BBC and with uh, US public television. He introduced me to the producers of Frontline, uh, PBS, and I made a number of films for Frontline over the years. And then from that was able to, you know, um, approach HBO and made my first feature documentary, which was Sergio. Um, but each step of the way, what I did was I, I sort of surrounded myself with people who knew what I want, who knew the world I wanted to get into better than I did and mm. help kind of introduce me into that world. So, you know, when I made Sergio as a documentary, my producers were John Batsik and Julie Goldman, who I think between them had probably four or five Oscar nominations and wins wow. for best documentary. And so, you know, they kind of, I had to convince them first and they're like, they helped me figure out this next thing. And, uh, and so it's surrounding yourself with people that probably know things, know that what you're trying to do better than you do and learning from them, I guess is probably the thing. And that plus finding projects you really are passionate about are the, the secret. Well, we end every show with this similarly how we start every show, which is just like a rapid fire round of a few final questions. What's the first film you've ever made? This could be a student film. This could be when you were five years old, whatever it was. First film you've ever made and how do you feel about it now? It was called The Red Car. It was me and my friend who is now a successful Broadway producer, Craig Savedra, and we took my dad's red Audi into the hills out in Southern California and um, drove the hell out of it on these dirt roads and and made an, a very bad action movie, but it was fun. And he didn't find out about it for like another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? It was on an interview I heard with Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. What's her name? Um, Sophia. Oh, Sophia Coppola. Sophia Coppola, yes, exactly. She was talking about making Virgin Suicide. What was the first film she did? The um... It was, and it's the 20th anniversary, like this week of Virgin Suicide. Yes, okay. So she was, someone was asking her, this was probably, like, somebody asked her what, what she learned. And she said, when she made her first film, her dad told her, you got to figure out one single emotion that the film was about, because everyone's going to come up to you with a million questions, like everything from like, what should the costumes be to, what should the background be? What should be on this? What kind of wine should be on this table <laughs> for this dinner scene? All of which is true. And have a single emotion that defines what what the movie is about. And you can then use it to convey, to, to at least come up with an answer that makes sense and is consistent. And for, for that film, she decided on uh, that loss was was that one emotion. And, and that was really key for me because I, I thought about what's the single emotion. And I, I hit on empathy 
and everything in this movie, I just, whenever someone would say, what should, what should this scene be like? I would just in, have in my mind, have that single emotion and I would use it to kind of be able to answer those questions quickly because people just want answers. They just want to know what to do and what kind of set to build and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought about that single word. And so that was, that was incredibly helpful. That's the best answer to that question we've had so far, A. And <laughs> B, I just did it for the film I'm in pre-pro on. And that, like, like just now just helped me. So well done, huh. Greg. Um, <laughs> do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Like, are you trying to hit, are you trying to win an Oscar? Are you trying to play 300 theaters? Like, do you have a, like a numeric goal? No, I don't. I just want to make movies I believe in and, and, uh, and want to spend, you know, two, three years of my life immersed in. So no, I think, you know, uh, in the documentary world, a lot of my friends, well, I, I love the doc filmmakers, but people are so obsessed with awards. Yeah, so obsessed with awards. It distorts the whole process. And everyone starts, you know, playing everyone else and you get all these emails about how, you know, come see my movie and it's all sort of a lot of it's all a game and it's kind of nauseating. And uh, I mean, I'm a member of the Academy and all that, but I've not won an Oscar and but sure I would love to, but you know, if you just play for that, it's not why any of us got into this. We are lucky to be making movies, incredibly lucky and privileged. And let's remember why we actually do it, which is to tell stories that move people not to win awards. Also a very good answer. Um, <laughs> if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Don't be afraid. You know, when I was in my 20s or something, I would have loved to direct and one day maybe direct a narrative feature. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that I could. Believe in yourself, but don't be too arrogant and go out and, and uh, get the experience. Because the experience that I got in the real world, you know, was invaluable. Because when I finally came to making a movie, I wasn't referring, my references were not other movies they were real world experiences that i had lucky been lucky enough to be a part of is making movies hard is it hard yeah uh yeah it is hard <laughs> but you know it's also an amazing job and it's just a movie <laughs> and so it's useful to keep it in perspective and that anybody who's making a movie no matter what size it's an incredible privilege to be able to explore the human condition and it's such a personal, visceral, intimate way that can touch an audience. So, you know, never lose sight of that. But yeah, of course, it's it's hard work, but anything worth doing is hard. Is there anywhere that people should go if they want to learn more about your films? Yeah, I mean, I think Netflix, watch Sergio, watch the kind of the uh, the shot by shot thing that Wagner and I, Wagner Moore and I did for, for Sergio. I do have a website. I have a Twitter, which is GJ Barker. I've got an Instagram which is just Greg Barker, where we have a lot of behind the scenes photos. And I've also, we've just started posting a series of interviews I did with uh, a lot of our key production crew from the DP, costume, sound designer. There's not a lot out there if you're directing your first movie of, you know, beyond film school. So I've, I've spent a lot of time just talking to the people who helped me make it about how we did it from the writer and uh, sound designer and all that. And it was incredible. So that'll be a resource out there that I hope people, you know, who are, you know, starting out can draw on as we go forward. It'll be through my Instagram. Awesome. Um, well, I'll make sure to have links to that and the shot by shot and everything else in the show notes so people can find it. Because I mean, that's what we're all about is like the tools and, and passing on resources and, you know, kind of lifting the curtain up a little bit yes. so people can see how things are actually done. And uh, 
you know, I did something similar on my first feature. I did like, it wasn't interviews with the, all the crew, but it was daily logs of my experiences oh, cool. making the film. And, uh, you know, it was kind of painful to listen to them later, but, right. uh, I think people <laughs> yeah. found them helpful. So that was, that was nice. But, uh, That's but yeah, cool. thanks for, thanks for doing that. And I, I hope you continue to do that on your next project. Cause I think, yeah, th this is the kind of thing that people are really hungry for. And I think is really helpful in helping people learn, you know? Great. Yeah, good. I, I think so. And also, you know, people, often directors are interviewed and actors, and it just seems like the movie just kind of happened. And as we all know, it's a, I mean, part of the pleasure of the process is it's so collaborative. And you have to know who those people are, what they do, and, and also honor their work. Thanks to Greg Barker for being on the show and from Meg from IDPR and everyone from Netflix for making this whole thing happen. If you would like, which, and we would like it, you could check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You could also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH Podcast. I'm at Liz Manischel on Twitter and Facebook and lots of places. I'll require you. I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah. And then I sometimes tweet as making movies is hard. I sometimes tweet as the alternate and it completely just, it's random whatever I'm logged into on my phone at the time. So uh, it's all me, you know. You'll track him <laughs> down eventually is what, <laughs> is, yeah, is what exactly. we're trying to express. If you like the show, tell a friend, helps get the word out, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you to Greg and Ulrich for an amazing episode. Thank you for watching the movies always, Ulrich. And yeah. um, talk to everyone next week. <laughs>